Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to give you a new way to get in touch with us. Podcast at lincolnproject.us. Send us your questions, your comments, your thoughts on our shows, any ideas you might have for guests, or anything else you want to share with us. I hope you'll take advantage of it. Let us know what you're thinking. Podcast at lincolnproject.us. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Mike Rothschild, a journalist, author, and the foremost expert in this ever-changing world that is the QAnon conspiracy theory. He is a contributing writer for The Daily Dot and has appeared as a fringe beliefs expert for a variety of outlets, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, NPR, and Vice. His latest book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything, is out in paperback this week and available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us from Pasadena, California. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so last year, Mike, I read a book about cyber warfare called This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, and that book scared me. But as I told the author of that book, Nicole Perlroth, and I'll tell you this, this book does not belong in current affairs or politics. It belongs in horror because there's a lot of stuff going on in here that is frightening, but also how quickly these things spread and across the types of people that you would think should know better. In a time where every bit of human knowledge ever invented, created, collected is literally available in a six ounce piece of metal, glass and plastic in your hand, that things like QAnon are still so powerful and there are so many people willing to be receptive to what it stands for and what it's trying to get across to them. Yeah, one of the things that you know we were told early on about the internet is that we would all have access to the Library of Alexandria in our pocket. And as it turns out, the Library of Alexandria is a porno magazine rack at a truck stop. <laughs> well, you have to laugh about this stuff because otherwise you would never stop throwing up. So yeah, the internet has put ideas in front of us and made these things extremely accessible when the ideas have always been there. We are not more conspiratorial as people, you know, polling shows that about the same number of people believe classic conspiracy theories as, you know, back then as they do now. But what we have now is the means not only to find any conspiracy theory that dovetails with our own personal beliefs, but to find other people who also believe these conspiracy theories. These used to be very isolated, siloed people. They were people who you, you didn't want around. They weren't in polite society. You shunned them. They were on street corners. Now they have their own communities. They have their own meetups. They have their own conventions. And they find each other as these beacons in the darkness 
And the rest of us are left going, how did this happen? And why do these people believe this stuff? All right. So then my theory is actually 180 degrees in the wrong direction, which is knowledge has never imparted wisdom or the access to it. But the ability for information to move instantaneously actually makes these things far more available to far more people far more quickly. Yeah, there have been very popular conspiracy theory books, you know, anti-Semitic books, all kinds of things. You know, I'm working right now on a history of the conspiracy theories about the Rothschild banking family. No relation before anyone uh, gets any ideas about hitting me up for a loan. But there were pamphlets written in France in the 1840s that sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Henry Ford's book, The International Jew, sold half a million copies. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Right. You can find, you know, a dozen different prints of that in any language you want to. These things have always been with us. What we have now is the ability to create our own. And this is something that I've really noticed as Q has burrowed deeper into the mainstream. You have more people taking little offshoots and little tangents of it and turning it into their own conspiracy theory. And if you pump out enough content and you make it really compelling and really lurid and full of irrelevant details, you have a pretty good chance of making a decent amount of money off it. So there's a couple of things in there that are worth exploring. One is, and you note this in the book, that the Jew, and in full disclosure, I'm half Jewish, is often at the heart of these things. The texts that we mentioned just a minute ago are a lot of them, but even George Soros, right? That's code for Jew. Marjorie Taylor Greene once posited that the California wildfires were started by Jewish space lasers. She's a member of Congress and likely to be reelected. And so the anti-Semitism goes back, and, I, and I'm just also reading uh, Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, where, again, a lot of that stuff as far as the anti-Semitism is not new. In fact, it's not new for the last, let's say, 2,000 years. Yeah. The Jewish community has always served as an easy target for people looking for an outsider group to blame for whatever is going on. You know, in, in the Middle Ages, they had their own language, they had their own customs, they dressed differently, they comported themselves differently, and they were very insular. And when you combine that with some of the canon law prohibitions on lending money with interest, you started to see Jewish communities rising up that had access to a lot of money. And we are inherently distrustful of people who are different than us. And we're also inherently distrustful of people who have more money than we do. And when you combine those two things, Jews make a very easy scapegoat. So when you have something like QAnon, it posits itself as not being anti-Semitic, as not being racist. It, it clearly is. And if you read the Q drops and if you read much of the other material created by QAnon promoters, you know, the anti-Semitism and the racism is obvious. But this movement takes very old stereotypes, very old tropes, very old scapegoating, and repackages it as something that seems very new, very social media friendly, very dynamic and shareable. But when you strip away that new coding, you've got the same parts underneath there that you've had since the crucifixion. So let's step back for a second. So in your book, it's hard to understand who Q, quote unquote, is. It could have been a guy out of South Africa. It could have been this guy, Ron Watkins, who was a follow-up who just lost a primary election for Congress in Arizona, and not by a little, but by a lot. But, you know, it was purported to be, correct me if I'm wrong, this team of military intelligence experts who really knew what was going on in the government. 
Right. So the idea of Q is that there is or was a secret military intelligence team codenamed Q that worked at the elbow of President Trump. You know, you'd have Trump in the Oval Office and the Q team is sitting there right next to him, read in on every major decision he makes. All of them are executing a plan to purge the world of the deep state, of the Democratic Party, of the Hollywood and banking elites, all of whom are satanic pedophiles who share children with each other, who have run the world for thousands of years. And now finally in Donald Trump, you had a president who was willing to stand up to this Babylonian cult and say no more. And the Q team was the mechanism by which he was doing that. And the purpose of the Q drops, those cryptic posts, first on 4chan, then on 8chan, was to let patriots know what was about to happen so that they could prepare for it, so that they could also take part in it. So with Q, you have a very participatory conspiracy theory. It's not some of these classic ones where you're reading a pamphlet or a book about what the Masons or the Illuminati are doing, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's already happened. The Trilateral Commission's in charge. The Trilaterals, the Bilderbergs, the Committee of 300, whatever name it has this week, they're so powerful that you can't do anything to them. All you can do is know that the boot is about to crush you before it crushes you. With Q, though, you fight back. You're making memes. You're decoding the Q drops. You're sharing things with your friends. You're red-pilling the normies, as they like to say. You are making your own versions of Q. You're decoding things. You're figuring out what's going on. And you find this community of people who is doing the same thing. And these are people who are also probably outcasts, whose family and friends have kind of given up on them. And they come together and they form a community of outsiders. And they believe that their purpose is to save the world. They believe that they are on the side of God fighting the evil black hats. And, and what what more could you want out of your life than being a participant in a struggle between good and evil? So before we go on to all of the things that you just made my head explode on, talk to me about what 4chan and 8chan are. And could I go to them today? You can. I wouldn't. But these are not dark websites. You don't need some sort of special browser. This isn't like some like Russian peer-to-peer -peer thing. This isn't the Silk Road. This is not the Silk Road. This is all completely accessible by anybody. So 4chan and 8chan, it's now called 8kun for a very long reason that I get into in the book, but it's not that important here. These are image boards. So what these do is you can post on here anonymously and you essentially create your own board and you put on it whatever you want to. It's usually pictures, memes, images, graphics you've created. So it's like a psychotic Pinterest. It's kind of a psychotic Pinterest, but also a murder board, you know, a bunch of red strings on a cork board. And it's all in the shape of a Star of David. Like a beautiful mind. Yeah, basically more like a horrible mind, <laughs> a diseased mind. So these are sites that allow complete anonymity. There's no way to tell who is doing what. And that's actually one of the reasons why it's so difficult to identify who first made the Q posts on 4chan. There's no footprint there. There's no signature. There's no screen name. It's just a bunch of numbers. And those numbers could be any one person, any multiple people, and it changes ownership a couple of times. The writing style changes. It jumps from 4chan to 8chan. But 
the basic thread of these is that these are very cryptic rhetorical posts full of kind of unanswerable questions, riddles, puzzles that don't have answers. Some of them are links to, you know, Fox News or Breitbart stories. Some of them are links to tweets. Some are links to videos. They come together to form a kind of gospel of chaos where if you don't speak the language, it looks like complete gibberish. But if you speak the language, you know exactly what it says, and there's no wrong answers. It could mean anything. It could have multiple meanings. It could have no meaning. That was one of the questions I was going to ask is, if you're willing to put yourself in the mind or in the seat of the person posting as Q, how do you know that people are going to care what you post? So here we go. Quote, the bracket D party will cease to exist once it's all exposed. Fake news, all caps, can no longer control brackets dampen public awareness of the truth, dark to light Q. Now, that's the most normal one, relatively speaking, in the book, near as I can tell. And even that still doesn't mean anything. Right. It's meaningless. It's gibberish. And it's the same kind of predictions that a strip mall psychic makes. They just throw things out and they get you to confirm it. And they're going to throw out a hundred different things. The vast majority of them will be meaningless. One of them will hit with you and that's the one they run with, and that's the one you remember. The rest of it is just forgotten. So there's the Q guy, but who's patient one? And how does patient one become patient half a million? Because again, there's no backstory necessarily, except that what people have picked out of it. And even I, after reading this book, and you, as you see on the Zoom here, it's got all these nerdy post-it notes in it as I'm trying to make sense of it, it breaks my brain to figure it out. Right. And it's supposed to. It's supposed to be completely inaccessible for people who are not completely steeped in 4chan trolling culture. So the patient one of Q, and, and it's really interesting because the, you can really track this almost in real time. Those first couple of Q posts, that Q drop number one, HRC, extradition, already in motion, blah, 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 that got almost no traction at all. Two people were like, yeah, it's cool if it's true. But it was put on a part of 4chan called Poll, which is a very anarchic, very anti-Semitic, very racist trolling hive. And what you have in some of these places are people who play characters. You know, I talk about this in the book. You had a fake FBI agent who went by FBI Anon. You had a fake White House insider who went by White House Insider Anon. There was a British intelligence one called MI5 Anon. And they'll kind of show up and they'll declare who they are and everybody plays along with it and asks them some questions and it burns out after a couple of days or a week. What happened with Q is that fairly early on, you had a couple of people who were very steeped in this culture decide that it was real. And I think that they decided it was real because they wanted it to be, but because it was about Hillary Clinton being arrested. Many of these other things are about, you know, aliens or secret technology or Obama's birth certificate, you know, stuff that's been around for a long time and that there's no real answer to and there's no real urgency to it. But the idea of Hillary Clinton finally getting what she deserved to these people was just too irresistible. So this is a follow on to lock her up. Right. This isn't just chanting lock her up. This is, oh, she's going to be locked up. And the thing with these posts is that. They're really full of irrelevant details. And the more details a conspiracy theory has, it doesn't matter if they're made up. They're all made up. 
none of them need to be real. The more details it has, the more believable it seems. So the idea that you will know that she's been arrested because the Marines and National Guard will deploy onto your street. This was tied in with this already extant conspiracy theory that there was going to be an Antifa uprising on November 4th, that you know Antifa was going to suddenly go door to door demanding you show your allegiance to you know the far left or whatever it was. So whoever posted this already believed that that was going to happen and that the proof of Hillary Clinton's arrest was going to be the deployment of the National Guard because of the Antifa uprising. So you've already got a conspiracy theorist and you've got somebody who speaks the language of the far-right evangelical conspiracy community who has hated Hillary Clinton since the early 90s. So you're giving people something they desperately want to happen, and you're giving them just enough evidence to show that it's going to happen. And then people started running with it. And within a week, you had videos extolling Q. You had blog posts going viral about, well, you know, maybe this could be true. Is this it? Is it happening? Now, never mind that that story that Q started off with completely fizzled out. All the dates of, you know, when all the people are supposed to be arrested and the riots, none of that happened. But by then, whoever was making these posts had gotten a little bit of a taste of the popularity that they'd already created. And so they immediately kicked the can down the road. Everything that Q posted about Hillary Clinton was actually about Saudi Arabia. Now, never mind that that's ridiculous. But suddenly you had a story that had survived a disconfirmation. And of course, many cults and conspiracy movements are very resistant to disconfirmation. So you had a movement where people had already been wrong once, but it didn't matter because they were so desperate for it to be right that they would believe anything. I don't think we can underestimate the fact that it was Hillary Clinton. For so many Americans, especially conservative Americans, Hillary Clinton had become mythological. She had transcended politics. She had transcended being first lady of the United States. She had transcended being a senator. She had transcended being secretary of state. And now she was an entity in her own right that represented, I guess, Mike, all of the things that you're talking about. So she was the perfect entry point in some ways. Right. And she is the figurehead of 30 years of conspiracy theories. Go back to, you know, the early 90s and Rush Limbaugh talking about, you know, the Clinton crime regime or whatever it was. And not only is she a politician we disagree with, she's a killer. She's got a body count list. She makes people disappear. She will destroy you if you get in her way. She's not just bad. She's evil. So when she went on the Today Show all those decades ago and said, there's a vast right wing conspiracy, we should have believed her. Uh-huh. I think she <laughs> underestimated the vastness of it. That's insanity. Yeah. I guess it's not, though, because it's what we're living with. So now Donald Trump is in office and all of these things are supposed to happen. And all the bad people who are Democrats, the George Soros's, the Hillary Clintons, anybody who disagrees with Trump. Now, tell us a little bit about how the intertwining of QAnon and Trump and subsequently the Republican Party starts to occur. It happens very gradually and then it happens all at once. So for the first eight or nine months, Q is growing on 4chan, then 8chan. It jumps from 4chan to 8chan in December of 2017. But nobody wants to talk about it. It's way too weird. It's in that kind of Pizzagate realm, that Clinton body count realm, that where's the birth certificate realm. It's just too weird for the vast majority of people who are not locked into something like InfoWars to touch. You know, nobody wants to write about it. Nobody wants to debunk it. It's like, don't give it oxygen. Don't feed the trolls. Don't acknowledge that it exists and it'll go away. Well, now we know that that's not how it works. And that if you don't 
pay attention to these things, they still grow. They just grow in a way that nobody's paying attention to. Yeah, it's like going to the doctor and saying, I have this lump. And the doctor's like, don't worry about it. It'll go away. Right. And the lump did not go away and it just metastasized. So the first real glimmer of kind of mainstream enmeshment with Trump was early August 2018. And Trump had a rally in Tampa. And it was absolutely swamped by QAnon believers. It was people holding up Q signs, people wearing homemade Q t-shirts, talking to the media about their Q merchandise, their Q challenge coins. They're shouting their, their catchphrases. They're holding up their signs. And there's a sort of collective gasp in the media of what is this? Who are these people? What's wrong with these people? What is this Q thing? Now, by that point, I'd already been writing about it for almost that whole year. I'd started writing about it in January 2018. But even then, it was dismissed as, oh, it's just a bunch of crazies. It's just an internet cult. It's like, who cares? It's an internet thing. Internet things don't matter. That's not real life. Well, again, we know that that's not true. Internet things are very much real life. But, you know, that was still long before January 6th. But when these movements weren't taken seriously, it was just mentally ill people holding up signs. Nothing that you wouldn't see, you know, at an off-ramp on a freeway. But these people had power. They were united in their messaging, and their messaging held up Donald Trump as an almost messianic figure who would be the one who would finally win this war between good and evil. And so you had a lot of people talking about the Q drops and what it was and where it came from. But then I think the interest kind of faded out again because we were running up into the midterms. So a few more months go by and then the crimes start happening. Then you start to have child kidnappings driven by Q-pilled lawyers because these moms think their kids are going to be handed over to child protective services for trafficking. You have this guy, Matthew Wright, who barricades himself in his homemade armored truck outside Hoover Dam, demanding that the unredacted Inspector General report be released. That's straight out of a Q-drop. There is no other reference for that. So you start to have this movement that isn't just sort of hopelessly devoted to Trump. There is a messianic violence to this movement. And then I think people really start to realize we probably should have been paying a little bit more attention to this the whole time. But even then, the social media companies still didn't crack down on it. It would take another year for Twitter and Facebook to finally start deplatforming QAnon. And that process really only finished after January 6th. So you have a movement that grows almost unchecked on social media that isn't really taken seriously by the mainstream media, that's full of people that you don't want to acknowledge, you don't want to talk to, and you don't want to talk about what they think. And these people take that ignoring and that uh, disregarding as powering their grievances. It's us versus them. And of course, Trump is the us versus them president. Well, and the one thing you noted here about Facebook in particular is, quote, a 2019 study by researchers at Princeton and New York University showed that Facebook users over the age of 65 were seven times more likely to share fake news stories. So talk to us a little bit about how the older generation really got wrapped up in this. Yeah, and it happened very early on in Q. In December of 2017, so really just a couple of months after the first drops, two of the very big early Q evangelists went on InfoWars. 
They didn't go on Alex Jones's show. They went on uh, this other guy, Rob Dew's show. But it's still, it's InfoWars and has a huge audience. And they're talking about how everything Q's predicted has come true, how this is a window into military intelligence and, you know, we'll never get this opportunity again. But they needed help. They needed people who had backgrounds in the military to help decode these posts. And these calls for assistance suddenly start going around on Facebook and Facebook groups where older people congregate. And suddenly it's like, oh, these skills that I have, they're needed to stop Hillary Clinton, who I've hated for decades. At one point, you had an influx of boomers going to 8chan, which is a horrible place that nobody should be going to, full of anti-Semitism and just horribly racist memes. And people got sucked into the story and this feeling of wanting to be a part of something. And for a lot of these people, it was about finding some kind of meaning at this stage in their lives. You know, maybe they're on their own, kids are out of the house, divorced, widowed, not working. And they're looking back at their life and thinking, it didn't go the way I wanted it to. Somebody got in the way. There's a reason why I'm not happy. And rather than look inward or look at their own choices, they think, oh, it's the Jewish cabal. It was Hillary. It was Obama. And here's some people who are going to stop it. And it, it hooks people on very easily that way. So I want to skip forward to COVID because first it was the boomers and then it was like the yoga moms, right? Which having been in California doing some work a few years back before COVID hit, when there was a vaccine bill going through the California legislature, the most vocal opponents to that bill were not the right wing nuts, but the moms from Marin County who arrived in Sacramento by the busload. And again, this is where it goes back to, you know, wealth, affluence, education, zip code. When it comes to some of this stuff, Mike, doesn't matter. So this was when Q really made the jump from far-right conspiracy boards, Soros, Obama, Hillary, to much more progressive, much more left-leaning communities who had their own conspiracy theories and their own distrusts. So when COVID hit, suddenly you have a world-changing event that is happening very rapidly in a way that is very difficult to understand. And when you have something like that, it is a petri dish for conspiracy theories. You saw it with 9-11, the JFK assassination, Something enormous happened that is not supposed to happen. We're not supposed to have pandemics. So what you had was people going online because they had nothing else to do. They were possibly losing their jobs, shut off from their friend communities, shut off from their families. And they're looking for reasons why this is going on and who is to blame for it. So if you have that very left-leaning yoga mom from Malibu who, you know, I would never vote for Donald Trump, but I don't think vaccines are good for us, or I think 5G internet is secretly giving us cancer, or, you know, I think Bill Gates is going to turn us all into human meat, or what, whatever it is. You go online, you find your Facebook group for, you know, moms who think Bill Gates is going to turn us into human meat, and that algorithm suggests to you an anti-5G Facebook group. So you join that one. That suggests to you uh, an anti-vaccine Facebook group. So you join that one. Then the algorithm says, oh, you like those things. Maybe you'll like The Great Awakening, which is QAnon. And you join that. And it's talking about saving children and stopping pedophiles and what the deep state wants to inject us with. And you go, well, I don't, I don't really like Trump, but you know, I think that there's some bad things going on here. And I, you know, I will do anything to protect my child. 
I won't let anything happen to them. And it rewrites the way you process information into thinking that everyone is out to get you and that everything that's going on is part of that silent secret war. And this idea of silent wars is hugely popular in the conspiracy community. And everybody wants to be on the right side of a secret war. So you find yourself saying things that you would never have believed, sharing stories you never would have thought possible, and then suddenly you're not vaccinating your kids, and then the election happens and you think, well, if they did that to us, why wouldn't they steal it from Trump? But before we get to the 2020 election, also hydrochloroquine, bleach, and the thing about those things, as I recalled them tiptoeing back through the insanity of that year, was that Donald Trump went to the rostrum in the White House press room and said, bleach and lights. It got all the way to the president of the United States. The most visible person on planet Earth is extolling the virtues of this crank conspiracy treatment. Right. The quack medicine world and the sort of crank cures world is very tied up with anti-Semitism, very tied up with medical conspiracy theories, things like that. You know, you've got all kinds of lists of doctors who've been murdered and things like that and cures they don't want you to have. And it felt like a very natural fit for Q. But when you had Donald Trump going, yeah, sure, inject some bleach into your lungs. What do you have to lose? I've been taking my ivermectin. I've been taking my hydroxychloroquine. I feel great. It validates everything that these people say, that the establishment doesn't want us to have these cures, but Donald Trump is not the establishment. He's an outsider, and he cares about us. Now, never mind. We all know Donald Trump doesn't care about anybody except Donald Trump. But when you have the president going up there and seemingly fighting against big pharma and big expert and big media, he becomes this kind of Pied Piper leading these desperate people straight off a cliff. So I go back to 9-11 as the beginning of this two decades of America being roiled. I think of it sort of as 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, global meltdown, and then it sort of goes on from there. And things sped up in that time. You saw that the election of Barack Obama, while historic for the United States, actually spurred, I think, many of the people that you're talking about to further and further levels of desperation. Trump gave them voice. But in your research, not just for this book, but of this sort of fringy world, it's really not fringy anymore. Is there any one root cause to this sort of desperation that so many Americans and maybe people around the world are feeling? Or is this just the state of the human condition and we deal with these things time and time again? It's just our turn to deal with them. Yeah, it really is the state of the human condition. You know, humans are hardwired to seek patterns, to look for order in chaos, to look for meaning in meaninglessness. We have always been that way. And, and there's always been crank authors and content creators, as you call them now, who took advantage of those things. And so the, the sort of outflow of conspiracy anti-Semitic books is very cyclical. It'll have decades where a bunch of stuff will come out and then you'll, it'll be a little fallow for a while. But even in the 90s, it was still more difficult to find these places. You know, you had major, major conspiracy movements around Waco, around, you know, Oklahoma City bombing. But it was always like a shortwave radio in the middle of the night. It was a pamphlet that you had to know where to go to get it. With conspiracy theories in the late 90s and then leading into 9-11, you started to see conspiracy groups on the Internet. So Yahoo groups, Usenet forums, Internet bulletin boards. 
they were on fire with conspiracy theories long before 9-11, you know, financial scams, Clinton stuff, Waco stuff, all of that. But then when you had 9-11, it was starting to get into the mainstream because the internet was more accessible and more used than it ever was before. So the internet really put all of this stuff in front of us, but the stuff was always there. It was just a lot easier to ignore. Well, I want to go back to the scam thing for a second, because you note that a lot of the stuff that sprung from QAnon turned out to be just one more way to separate believers from their cash. And in fact, there was a story as we're recording this of my home state of Utah here, where a couple just got fined over $200,000 by the Federal Trade Commission because they were making FJB and Let's Go Brandon t-shirts, but they were getting them printed in China, getting them shipped to their home, ripping out the tags and putting Made in the USA on them and then selling as Made in America. And then, you know, you also talk about Alex Jones, you know, late of Sandy Hook and his trial, which we could probably do a whole other episode on just on that trial, where, you know, he says absolutely insane things to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And if the plaintiff's lawyers in that trial were to be believed, making somewhere on the order of $800,000 a day, which is about 300 million bucks a year. So there's a lot of cash in this stuff, too. Yes. And this is very much an industry. And, you know, when I've been talking about, in particular, the election fraud conspiracies, which, of course, is completely enmeshed with QAnon, it's a stolen election industry. And it's not just political belief. It's it's not just, hey, we want an audit to see who really won. It's give us money for an audit. Buy our movie about the audit. Buy our merchandise. Buy our podcast subscriptions. Buy this worthless junk that is made in China and has no value. So the amount of money being made off of this is enormous. In March of 2019, you had the first real pro-Q book called QAnon, An Invitation to the Great Awakening, written by 12 people under a, an anonymous name. And it went to number two on all of the books on Amazon. And it got thousands of five-star reviews. And it was up on Amazon for years, I think. I think they only fairly recently pulled it down. That book made so much money for its creators that that collective actually fractured over who was going to get more of the money. <laughs> as is want to happen. As is want to happen, yes. You have so much money coming in from crowdfunding, you know, because these people use things like Patreon for a while. Now they use Give, Send, Go. They're selling all manner of merchandise, self-published books, self-created videos. There is an enormous amount of money in telling people things that they want to be true and then selling them products based on that. You know, Trump coins, fake medical stuff, any number of this stuff. So there are people who are not just evangelizing this conspiracy theory, and they probably believe that it's true or at least believe most of it is true. They're making a lot of money off it and they don't want to stop. Well, and I think there seems to be an absolute willingness amongst the believers to spend a lot of money on this, but also an absolute willingness amongst a few very wealthy, shadowy people to finance this stuff, too. Yeah. And the finances of who is donating all of this money is very shadowy. You know, people have asked me, like, who's funding QAnon? Well, you don't really need to fund posts on an image board that doesn't require any kind of money. But what you do have is, you know, these major events now where once a month these people gather together in these things called the Reawaken America Conference or all these other conferences that were going on last year. 
it's like the MAGA summer tour. I mean, they're everywhere every weekend. They just announced again, these things will be going on as this goes to air. But, you know, Ron DeSantis is going to do one in Arizona. He's going to do one in Ohio. He's going to do one in Pennsylvania for Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk's sort of Hitler Yeugen reboot. But they're all the same people, I feel like. Maybe they're age-wise are different, but it's all sort of the same now collective. Right. It's all the same people. And if you look at the rosters of some of these conferences, and they are, they're going on every weekend. There would be weekends where there would be multiple conferences in the same city. And you'd have Mike Flynn speak at 11 o'clock at Turning Points USA, then 2.30 at Reawaken America, cashing those checks the whole time. It's the same core of people who are all enmeshed in this very multi-headed conspiracy world. So it's some people who are firmly in the stolen election industry. Some people who are firmly in the ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, anti-big pharma industry. You've got some people who are firmly in the, you know, cancel culture closed my business because it wouldn't let me discriminate world. And there is no separation between any of these worlds. You are just as likely to be a QAnon believer as you are to be a Trump actually won all 50 states. And the deep state is suppressing alien technology and ivermectin will cure every kind of disease anybody could ever have. And they all get together. They all pay their 500 bucks for their tickets. They all buy their merchandise and they are being fleeced left, right and center. So now as we fast forward to today, Mike, is that QAnon very prominent at the January 6th insurrection, right? A lot of QAnon flags flying as those people storm the steps. Is QAnon alive and well today, or has it been subsumed or absorbed into this sort of broader, what I'm going to call ultra MAGA movement, for lack of a better way to put it? The QAnon that we knew from end of October 2017 up until the inauguration, that really has faded out. You've seen a discarding, a very conscious discarding of the iconography, of the catchphrases, the hashtags. They don't even call themselves QAnon anymore. You know, now they think that was a term made up by the media to make truth seekers look crazy. Now, again, it's not true at all, but that's the world they live in. But what you do have is the mainstreaming of the beliefs that Q had from the very beginning. The all-powerful deep state, democratic pedophile trafficking rings, the secret war between good and evil. What is it? With, I know that in Eastern European politics and Russian politics in particular, the referencing of your opponent as a pedophile is a longstanding and very common smear. But how did the pedophilia thing get so wrapped up into this? Because I remember looking at a survey, Mike, in like October of 20, where it said like 25 percent of registered voters, registered voters, not the people that turned out, believed that it very well might be that Joe Biden was involved in something like this. Like, that's insane. So there's a couple of things going on here. And I think one of them is the very basic idea that calling someone a pedophile is kind of the worst thing you can call somebody. And it's also, how do you prove that you're not? Now, never mind that that's not on you. That's on the person making the accusation to prove that you are. But again, these people don't work under the same principles of evidence that the rest of us do. But more than that, you have a long tradition of the elites doing things that are so dastardly and so horrible that they can't even be talked about in polite society. And for generations, they've gotten away with it. You know, you find a lot of this stuff with the Rothschild family, you know, who I'm writing about right now. 
where they would hunt humans on their vast estates and they would use Christian children in their rituals. I mean, you go back to the blood libel of the 12th century that Jewish communities were kidnapping good Christian English children and using their blood to make matzah. I mean, connecting somebody with imaginary crimes against children is kind of the worst thing that you can do to somebody. But of course, the irony that Donald Trump and now the deceased Jeffrey Epstein were buddies, many photos of them and Jelaine Maxwell as well, goes totally by them. So rather than confront the idea that, hey, maybe Donald Trump got into some stuff that he should not have gotten into and we should examine that, you find a way to justify it. And you say that, well, it didn't happen. He was only pictured with Epstein so he could keep an eye on Epstein. There are Q believers who think that Trump was actually working for the FBI to build a case against Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, I don't know what has to go through your mind to believe that, except that you are so devoted to Trump that you just can't even conceive of the idea that he could do anything wrong. And anything he does that's wrong is actually even more right. The media just won't tell you about it. Right. So how does this all work now? Because it seems to your point that all of it, the election denier stuff, right? We have in Arizona, Carrie Lake, who still says 2020 was stolen. Doug Mastriano, who intimates that, who was at the Capitol on January 6th, a man running for attorney general in the state of Michigan, who evidence recently appeared that he had been tampering with voting machinery, the guy who's running for secretary of state in Nevada and Arizona and Michigan, all are big lie believers and say that they will make sure only those people can certainly vote. And now Donald Trump, even since the January 6th hearings have gotten going, is now more than ever going out on every stage he can find and saying the 2020 election was rigged and stolen. So how does this all fit in to the downstream effects of a QAnon? So what you have is kind of the ultimate manifestation of this idea that these conspiracy movements are resistant to disconfirmation. We've seen over and over and over every single one of these lawsuits, every single one of these audits, they've all failed immediately and spectacularly. But it doesn't matter. You still have people who are saying, oh, Arizona is going to be decertified. I mean, never mind that that's not a thing. These people still believe that an election that happened almost two years ago is going to miraculously be reversed because they want it to be and because they believe in magic or miracles or whatever it is. A lot of it is just that sunk costs fallacy, which is why people stay in these kinds of movements in the first place. You've given so much to this. You've devoted so much of your time, your money, your energy. You've given up your friends, your family, maybe your job. You've made this your life. You've made this your identity. And no amount of court cases, no amount of failed audits is going to move you off of this because you have nowhere else to go. And then you have that QAnon aspect of, I'm not just going to watch it happen, I'm going to participate. And I'm going to participate by running for office. And I'm going to get on my school board, my city council, working all the way up to places like the Secretary of State office, local legislature, where you have the ability to certify presidential elections. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I had the opportunity to testify to the House Administration Committee about two months ago, talking about the danger of election disinformation. And I said, it's not just a text message telling you that Democrats vote on Wednesday. I mean, certainly that's part of it. But the real danger to me, at least, is a group of conspiracy theorists gets in power, either in the state house or secretary of state office or governor, and they deputize themselves to pick who wins the election. And then you don't have a democracy anymore. You have a dictatorship. Right. 
Well, as we close up here, I just, you know, as I got to the afterward, I don't know if I was ruefully smiling, grinning, grimacing or whatever. Quote, a small crowd gathered on Dallas's Dealey Plaza on a cool early November day in 2021, full of excitement and powered by the secret knowledge. It was almost a year after the last Q drop and three years into the COVID-19 pandemic. But the people assembled that morning in the solemn place where John F. Kennedy was assassinated nearly 60 years prior weren't worried about getting sick. I was in Dallas, Mike, when this was happening. Oh, my God. Watching on the morning news going, they're really waiting, not for JFK, but for John F. Kennedy Jr. to return. Right. And Tupac and Michael Jackson. And Elvis. And, and Elvis. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of the other track that this has taken where much of this has become very mainstream. You know, you kind of can't be a Republican now unless you believe that Joe Biden is a fake president. But you have within that becoming an in-group, you still have out-groups. And one of them is this group called Negative 48, and they're still in Dallas. They are still going to Trump rallies. They're waiting for 104-year-old John F. Kennedy to return from the dead because he was never dead. And then Trump will ascend to the level of King of Kings and everything will be amazing and we'll get our healing medbed technology and our free money from the government will arrive and the spaceships will be released. It is a form of utopia that is so unbelievably toxic because it gives you everything you want and it gives you an explanation for everything bad that's ever happened. And it becomes an addiction. And that's where some of these people are. They are addicted to hope. And it's sad because these people have been left behind and they are mocked. They are ridiculed by society because it's so mockable. It's so ridiculous. But we forget that there are people there and there are people who are desperately in need of something good to happen in their lives. And unfortunately, this is the road they've gone down to find it. Well, and also I want to talk a little bit about before we go, the idea that QAnon and its continuation in whatever form it takes is jumping the air gap, not only with JFK, but also with violence. This is an inherently violent movement. It's based around the extrajudicial trial and execution of whoever Q deems to be part of the cabal. And that could be anybody. That could be anybody that Q or the Q team or Q believers decide has to go. And you saw that fairly early on. You know, you've seen murders committed by Q believers. You know, there was a guy in Seattle who ran his brother through the head with a sword. This was a Q believer. This was a Proud Boy believer. Thought his brother was a lizard. Thought he had to die. You saw this recently with the guy who took his two kids to Mexico and murdered them because he thought they'd been contaminated with lizard DNA. You start to get mixed up with what's real and what's not real. And I think there's a very major mental illness component of this. And there's a reason why at least several of the people who have been connected to Q-related murders have been found not capable of standing trial. You know, they're not mentally fit to do so. But you never want to assume that that's the case because plenty of these people are completely fine. They are running businesses. They have families. They have jobs. They have college degrees. They don't genuinely believe that they're getting messages from classic rock radio telling them that Q sent them. These are people who are in touch with the world, who are making choices and who have decided this is the route I want to go down. These are the people who I want to be associated with. These are my people. We believe the same thing. But I think that that's one thing, too, that I've tried to remind our listeners of and, and the folks that follow us is that remember that 
the vast majority of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were not economically disadvantaged young white guys who were jobless and listless. Like these were middle-aged professionals who had the money, the wherewithal, and the devotion to get there and do what they did. It is expensive to fly across the country with thousands of dollars worth of body armor and stay in the Trump hotel and, you know, leave your thousand dollar rifle in your room just waiting for the time when you're going to get the signal. This is not economic anxiety. This is deep seated fear of progress, deep seated loathing of experts and the media and of politicians as usual. And this is a guy telling them everything's going to be great. I can fix it. You've been ignored and hated your whole life. I love you. And we're going to do this together. And the appeal of that is deep and profound. I have a bad expression, but I think it works here, is that MAGA buys in bulk, but it sells one at a time. Yeah. So how do you separate folks from this? I mean, we've had, we've had other psychological and cult experts on the show to discuss this, and one of them actually had been a member of a cult, the Moonies, back in the 70s. And it took a literally like near-death experience for him to be sequestered away from these people to be pulled out of it. But if you find yourself with a friend or a family member who's been wrapped up in this, how do you start the process of unwinding it? Well, it's a very difficult question, and it's not a question that has a really satisfying answer. And I talk a lot about this in the book, sort of what to do, what not to do. What not to do is what feels like the thing you want to do, which is to either kidnap them and throw them in a van and put a hood over their head, or just to make fun of them so much they feel ashamed and they walk away. That's never going to happen. You can't get somebody out of one of these kinds of movements, whether it's QAnon, anti-vax, stolen election, whatever it is. You can't get them out unless they want to get out. And if they don't, nothing is going to move them. You telling them, hey, you're hurting people. You're hurting yourself. You're putting yourself at risk. I don't know you anymore. You've fallen in with bad people. That only makes them dig in deeper because it makes you the enemy. It turns you into the person who's actually crazy. What you have to do is basically let that person know, I still love you. I still care about you. You are still important to me. You are more important to me than QAnon or decertifying Arizona or whatever is to you. And you stay in touch with that person and you let them know that you're out there, that you're listening. You don't want to talk about the conspiracy. You don't want to get into a pointless debate or a pointless argument. You're never going to get somebody out of this through debate or debunking or fact checking. If you have somebody in your life who has really, really completely rewritten their identity, the only thing that you can do is just let them know that if they do want to get out, if they do find that dangling thread to pull on, that you will be there as a landing spot. You won't judge them. You can help them out together. It sounds almost like addiction. Oh, it's totally addiction. It is absolutely an addiction. It's an addiction to fear and to feeling bad and to feeling like someone's out to get you. It is the delusion that there are powerful people who are trying to stop you. And that becomes actually very comforting. The idea that you have done something that is so meaningful that the people at the very top have noticed you and are setting out to destroy you. You get a lot of that with Q, like the government destroyed my business. The government took all my retirement money. That idea of us versus them becomes your personality. And I think the only way to get somebody out of that, if they start to see it, is really to unplug them. Get them away from social media. Get them away from the doom scrolling the constant churn of bad news, get them back in nature, get them back with regular people who do not obsess with these things. And then you can start to see the bonds kind of dissolve and the, the scales fall off the eyes a little bit. 
but it takes a long time and it's very hit or miss. It's very frustrating. And I've talked to people who are getting out of QAnon and, it, and it's a constant battle. You're constantly being reminded, you're constantly being triggered and you don't ever get the feeling of closure. You don't get the, well, screw you, I'm out of here because you don't really feel like you want to get out of there. These are your friends and this has been your community and you don't want to leave it behind. So it's very difficult. Well, and I, and I hope that for those of our listeners who, who have experienced that, I, ho I hope you'll take Mike's words and the other folks that we've had on to discuss this to heart, because I know that in our absolute knee-jerk society, especially our social media set, the first thing to do is say, what an idiot. And I understand that. And I try and preach to our folks that like the fastest way to make sure that like none of these people ever come back, ever, ever, ever come back is to remind them that they got no place to come back to. Right. All right. Well, Mike, before we let you go, one, where can we find you on social media? And two, what else are you working on? So you can find me on social media on Twitter at RothschildMD. I'm not a doctor, just my initials. So at RothschildMD. And then right now I am working on my next book. It's called Jewish Space Lasers. And it is about the 200-year history of conspiracy theories and hoaxes and myths about the Rothschild banking family and how those myths have adapted to the internet age, how they've been presented in film, in newspapers and books and pamphlets, and on the influence they've had on how we look at Jews and Jewish wealth. All right. Well, listen, we'll look forward to that. And as always, folks, before you go, remember that the paperback of Mike's book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything is available now. Mike, I want to thank you and everybody else. Before I get out of here, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Thanks again, Mike, and everyone else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.